listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Folks, you found your way to the Making Data Simple series. It's on IBM Analytics Insights on iTunes. It's prominently featured on ibmbigdatahub.com, also YouTube. Uh, essentially, the point is we're pretty much everywhere. So while data is our core, we keep things light, we keep things fun, we talk about pretty much anything. And speaking of, today is going to be good. I have Jeff Jonas who, you know, our, our official title today, no, no telling if we're going to stay on this title, but is Inside Machine Learning, AI, and, and the, the questions you didn't think of to ask. But Jeff is, I'll try to give you a, a good intro here. It's not going to be good enough, but Jeff is an, a, a, an acclaimed data scientist. He's the, the creator of Entity Resolution Systems. I know he's on the forefront of solving a ton of big data problems for companies and governments. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's also a great presenter because I've been on the receiving end of those uh, pitches that he's given, he's given many times, and he's a great storyteller. But with that, uh, I'll just jump right in. Hey, Jeff, how you doing, man? I'm good. <laughs> Uh, I know Jeff from, from IBM, and um, look, I was reading the other day, uh, I don't know what article it was, but they called you the data wizard. I presume you're the data wizard. Is that is that your official name now? And I, no, I've no, I don't know how I got I mean, I got that because National Geographic ran a profile ah. with me, and they called me the wizard of big data. Uh, they didn't tell me they were going to say that until the piece was published, but... <laughs> um, well, it suits you well. It suits you well. So... Um, for those of you that don't know you already, and I could not even describe what you do, why don't you describe what you do for a living? Uh, I'm a triathlete. I uh, swim 2.4 miles, pedal 112 marathons. Oh, wait, wait, there's the wrong interview. I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to that later. Because I I, I'm, I'm going to figure out how you do that. <laughs> I had a software company called Systems Research and Development. We were in Las Vegas. We were building custom software. We built some software called Nora, Non-Obvious Relationship Awareness, and it was used by casinos to help them better understand who they were doing business with. Take a couple <laughs> rounds of venture capital. So politically correct, but keep going. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> keep going. All right, we, we found, we found criminals capital. in casinos. Go ahead. Yes, yes. We took a couple rounds of venture capital. The first venture capital in 2001 was from Incutel, the venture capital arm for the CIA, which was interesting because I've never really been to the, the East Coast. Um, anyway, IBM buys my company in uh, 2005 and no one thought I would stay. I did 11 and a half years. IBM has a product today called Identity Insight. It's my entity resolution technology that my team and I built. Uh, 11 and a half, I was the longest sitting CEO founder to stay in IBM. And June, June of 2016, I, I proposed a spin out and that was I was given a green light. We spent 45 days negotiating. August of 2016, we spun out Sensing, S-E-N-Z-I-N-G. And so I'm the founder and CEO of Sensing. It's, it's a really unique, one-of-a-kind experiment by IBM. And I, we walked, uh, uh, when I, I departed, I ended up with a license to our, our, our next-gen G2 technology, which is entity resolution, AI for entity resolution and a team and some patents and the relationships of amazing. Very good. Uh, so I might as well hit this now then. 11 years, you're an entrepreneur, you stay at IBM. So what, what was the attraction, dare I ask, 
you stay there for a while, which is 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 pretty impressive. You know, IBM was really good to me when it bought my company. It was really good to me for 11 and a half years. I just took a lot of great people. One of the first things I did is I went and toured the labs. IBM spends five, six billion a year in R&D. And just traveling the labs and seeing all the stuff they were working on was really inspirational. And uh, I, I felt primarily effective and I was having fun. I, I worked there as a as a hobby. It was a choice and it wasn't even a job. But many days I worked over, at least five days a year, I'd work over 24 hours straight just because I love what I do so much. So it, I don't know, it was just a good fit for me. Everyone was really surprised. No one thought I would stay 30 seconds, man. Good. Well, I didn't pay you to say that either. So honestly, that, that must be coming from the heart. So I like it. Yes. Good answer. Good answer. All right. So look, I, I think the best way to get into this is I know you as a very good storyteller. So there's a lot of folks that probably don't understand uh, identity insights, you know, things like uh, of that nature. The first time that I saw you give a presentation, uh, you were talking about a partnership with the Singapore government tracking suspect freighters, if I could say so, off the port of Singapore that may be exchanging hands, uh, maybe in not so legal fashion. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. But that was a great, great story in terms of how you were identifying the correlation uh, in, in, you know, I guess identifying suspect suspects or suspect uh, freighters. So would you, you know, start us with a story. I got to hear one. I know yeah, the story. All right. Uh, right to the west coast of Singapore is what is called the Malacca Straits. Half the world's oil supply, a third of the world's commodities go through there. Uh, the shipping trade was Singapore's first industry. It's the foundation on which uh, the great country of Singapore is built viably economic society. If there's disruption in there and people don't want to bring vessels through there, it would really be bad. So on any given day, they're trying to figure out which vessels are the most interesting so they can pay them a visit. We didn't do this, by the way. We provided them or they acquired our software, our G2 technology, and our G2 technology figures out when two people are the same or two companies are the same or two vessels are the same, even though they were described differently. I'll, just, I'll give you an example of that. As you know, like company names, might they might have two different physical addresses, but maybe they share a phone number and the names are a bit different, but if you look close enough, I mean, is it the same company or not that owns both of those vessels? And with people, crew, uh, vessels that are going to stop in the port announce their crew, and you want to know if somebody, uh, last time they came through, were on a Nigerian passport, but this time, when they presented their identity, they shifted it a bit, and they're on a French passport. It's potentially identity deceit. Maybe they didn't want you to know it was the same person that had come through last time. Another factor that you would look at when you're trying to figure out if vessels are risky is geospatial movement data about where vessels travel and how long they hang out in places. <laughs> and so they, they had a billion records of what's called AIS data, which is vessel telemetry data, and we you know, compute where vessels hang out. And so it's a combination of vessels hanging out in weird places plus crew members that are maybe have identity deceit. And when you kind of add these factors up, it allows you to, to in a command center make a, a an ordered list of the most interesting vessel first and then the second most interesting next and it's just an ordered list so our technology was used for that we were on stage with uh, one of our partners from Singapore and uh, you know I talked about the technology and they talked about they showed some pictures and a little bit about some of the outcomes but at the end of the day it, you know it's used to help pick which vessel 
folks show up with, with guns and masks and jump on the ship and run around and ask questions. So, so tell me a little bit about the how, though. I mean, how does your, how does the technology, the undercurrent work? Um, I mean, you're using geospatial. I mean, you got to be using some kind of GPS and that kind of equation that's integrated within your identity insights technology or G2 technology, I should say. Yeah, in this case, it's G2. Uh, we use the inspiration from identity insight to imagine what you could do if you could start over, and that's what G2 is. When we, uh, just, I need to say a little bit about that, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about how it works. Okay. In 2009, I, I pitched this idea, you know, knowing what I know now, what would I build uh, if my team and I could build anything next? And I, I imagined what it would mean to have software that it would could figure out who's who regarding people or companies or vessels or planes or routers or asteroids, and it would do it on small data sets, in other words, not enough data to train on, and large data sets, and it wouldn't require an expert to train it or tune it anymore, and it wouldn't require any rule changes. It's radically different than other entity resolution methods. And so we started in 2009, and then in 2012, we started shipping it commercially. By the way, very excited about this. Um, on November 5th, not long ago, uh, the New York Times broke a story about how our G2 technology has been used since 2012, modernizing voter registration in America. Half the country, blue states, red states, are running on the system, and it's running our entity resolution, and it provides states insights, and it has uh, improved the quality of the election rolls. So anyway, so this G2 technology has been around for a while, and it came with all this inspiration, including making it run in other languages, not require training tuning, um, baked more privacy features into it than we've baked into other stuff. It's really everything you could do if you could start over. And now your question would be, well, how does it work? Well, you feed it data. I'll give you the kind of the tech, a more slightly more technical version. I mean, you can feed it CSV files, which is like Excel spreadsheets, but a bigger uh, user, not a not like a desktop user, but programmers that integrate us like a library would be sending us JSON messages that have a tag for parts of names and a tag for address stuff and a tag for phone numbers and a tag for vessels have things called IMO numbers and MMSI numbers um, and call signs. And so you put tags around these things and the engine looks at these values, finds other entities that have had those values in the past. Think of that as candidate selection. Maybe you've seen you know, a million people, but now you've got a, a, name and a, a name and a passport and a date of birth. You first query the whole database and find candidates, and then, then you kind of like slow down and become very methodical, and you do something called competence evaluation where you're comparing the names to see if they're possibly the same. I mean, there's a lot of ways to spell Mohammed, just like Beth, Elizabeth, Liz, Lizzie are all part of the same name family. And there's lots of fuzziness in addresses, and passports can have leading zeros or not, so you have to be able to see through the fuzziness. So anyway, part one is candidate selection, and part two is uh, um, competence evaluation. And as an outcome, you make a bet, you make an assertion. You go, same? Probably same, I'm sure. And you're rarely wrong. Uh, possibly the same, which means you, you think it really is the same, but you can't be sure. Maybe it, needs to, it would need additional information or human eye. And then not the same, for sure, uh, but related like they share the same address or uh, they share a family that shares the same email. So that's still pretty high level. <laughs> that's roughly that's how that works. The difference is it's self-tuning and self-correcting while it's running. And with, you know, what we have now, it's, we have a real-time AI for entity resolution. And 
to be more specific is we didn't use AI to do this. We created an AI just to do this. And its most unique property is that in real time, it takes things it's learning and it goes backwards in time to fix the past without reloading as a batch. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. You think these two people are the same because the name, address, and phone, but 100 million records later, you get a record and it gives you the evidence that it's a junior and a senior. It says SR on the record and maybe it's the first time you've seen a, a year a year of birth that's 24 years earlier than the other person. And, and when you get that record, 100 million record, uh, records later, you have to ask yourself, is this a new person or a known person? And if I knew this in the beginning before I processed any records, would I have made any decisions differently? And, and that's what we figured out how to do at scale at thousands of, of transactions a second. And that makes it very unique. So the more data you feed it, the smarter it gets, and you don't have to keep reloading it. All right. I got, that's a lot. <laughs> that's good. Sorry. No, that's that's like, my life's work. That's all right. That's exactly what I wanted. You know, one thing that's hitting me hard while you're talking about this is uh, I happen to be, you talk about junior and senior. You have a junior, I'm, you talk about junior and senior. I'm actually the fifth. So uh, that means there's four others. Well, there's only one that's still alive above me, the fourth. Uh, you know, I'm Albert Martin the fifth, and I've got, you know, my dad is the fourth. And I just received from the DMV all his vehicle titles. No. no I, I, they need your technology, I can tell you right now. And then you go up there and try to, you know what the DMV is like. You go up there to try to correct it, and it's still trying to get it corrected. How it got messed up in their system, I have no freaking idea. By the way, it's, it's terrible when I'm traveling, too. Because if you don't leave a space, you know, some of the systems are old, they don't leave a space, they leave a space, and all of a sudden they say I'm a different person than I am, it's, it's, it's painful. So are these correlations that the human eye cannot detect? Uh, is it just because of the vastness of data you're dealing with? Or are we even talking about, um, you know, even small amounts of data that we just don't correlate that you've developed the technology to find these correlations that otherwise we wouldn't see with the naked eye? First of all, I'll tell you, when somebody sends you your, your, uh, one of your brother's records, that is an entity resolution problem. What, what's happening when people are running our software out of the box without any tuning is they most frequently come back and say, you know what, you miss a few things humans catch, but you're catching more things than uh, the humans are catching. So it's producing a higher quality result with just out of the box in default. And one of the things that I've done recently to try to uh, explain entity resolution is I've created a video. I created 30 charts, and we've reduced it to a video. I, I, I first presented it uh, at an IBM Think conference earlier this year, and then we've kind of clipped it out so that people can just watch this one piece. But it's called slow motion entity resolution. And there's 10 charts. And the first chart says, hey, here's three records. Do you think it's one person, two or three? And you let humans look at it. And you'll get this really mixed uh, result from the audience about, is it one, two, or three? But when you show them why it's one, the audience goes, yeah, you're right, it's one. And then I show them the second record and say, well, what, is, what happens with this one? And then the third, and, the, and I mean the fourth and the fifth. <clears throat> and nobody yet that I know of, when I've shown all 10 records, like 10 moves on a board, has 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 been able to um, claim what would be the right move. But as soon as you show them why, it's obvious to them. 
And all that shows you is that it's really hard to hold it in your head. It's it's not magic. It's not like, well, just trust the machine. Like you just look at it and go, yeah, you're right. That's the best decision. But it was, you know, I I missed that subtlety. You know, oh, I missed that the date of birth was month and day transposed. That's the only problem. I mean, if you have two people with a similar name, same cell phone, and the date of birth is only different because the month and day is transposed, hey, that's probably the same person. Yeah, no, I so I saw you deliver that, I think. And for those of, that are listening, I think it's out there on YouTube as well. And I watched it. I rewatched it. And I, I think to your point, I mean, it's only 10 cards in this case. That's yeah. why I asked the equation. It's only 10 cards. Now, there's, there's what, five, six attributes, whatever it is. But pretty soon, I think it's not that it's not logical. Once you point it out, you can figure it out. But as you're watching it, it just becomes painful. And exhausting in your head to say, now, wait a second, I, now I'm getting confused, now who's who? And then you start guessing, second-guessing yourself, and it becomes just a mess of I don't know. And it's, hard, it's just hard to hold it in your head, even though there's ten cards and maybe four attributes. And some cards have one attribute, and other cards have maybe four or five attributes, but there's not many attributes. It's not meant to be unknowable. And if you look at it long enough, maybe had a piece of paper and modeled it out, you'd get it right. But if you just ask people to do that, like in a review process, everybody I've met will get at least one move wrong. Well, that, that's the curious thing. I'm sure it is a big data problem, but it's really doesn't have to be a big data problem. This is not necessarily big data. It's just the correlations that your mind just can't get around. And, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do at Sensing that's really different is historically, if, if, if an organization wants world-class entity resolution, it's only been accessible to the elite. Like literally, if you don't have a million dollars of investment, it just, you can't get it. And the question is, what about everybody else? And what we're doing at Sending is, and I had to check myself uh, in the mirror for this, is like we let anybody in the world just download it for free, the whole software, mm-hmm. without even giving us an email address. And if you have less than 10,000 records, you can use it for free as long as you want. You can find all the duplicates in your in your contact list on your on your phone or your your you know your email. You can find all your duplicates in Salesforce.com. You can compare Salesforce.com to the OFAC regulatory list and make sure you're not accidentally trying to sell to somebody you shouldn't. And fifty thousand records is five dollars a month. I mean, pet store owners with duplicates on their Christmas mailing list are now going to be able to get some relief for nothing. And the largest organizations in the world will pay more, but it's a fraction of what any other method costs. Sounds like so a, it's really, we are going to have tens of thousands of customers. Sounds like a great yeah, try and buy, because once you're hooked, uh, you know, most people are going to have Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, and, and for probably, I'll say half of our users um, will just be try and keep, I mean, try and use it because they don't need more than 10,000 records. Like nonprofits that have smaller um, uh, a mailing lists, just free mm-hmm. forever. Right. It's not even a trial. What about the underlying, like, data sources. I'm a data guy. Does it support essentially any data source? Does the data source matter? Uh, you know, the kind of data that you would feed it would be names and addresses of people or companies. I mean, other, some use it for vessels and planes, but I mean, primarily it's about matching identity of a person or a company. And so it's whatever data you would have. I mean, we send you the code, and so no data flows to us. It runs on your laptop, desktop, or Linux backend systems, and you feed it your data. So you know, there's a hotel. Uh, there's a hotel I go to. I won't name them. It, it's embarrassing, 
but I forgot my loyalty club number. So I'm going to go, well, look it up. So they look it up and they go, okay, we have three of you here in Vegas, uh, three Jeff Jonas's in Vegas. Which one is you? And they tell me a little bit about each one. And I go, well, they're all three me. For our marketing purposes, customer 360, really knowing who your customer is, um, is perfect for that. It's also really well suited to catching clever bad people that are trying to obfuscate their identity. So, but can I, I mean, how long does it take from the time I say, look, you you got me convinced. I'm going to go grab it. I'm going to put it on my data set. How long does it take me to get started and uh, – If you export your address book to CSV, like you're you're on Lotus Notes, so export your Lotus Notes to CSV, install sensing, and if it takes you more than four minutes for you to find all your duplicates, call me. Like, I'll be like, really? (laughs) But you always got to – you got to export it, though. That is one requirement. Yeah, yeah. You got to export it. Uh, we, we've got some ideas of allowing you to click a button and have it reach in and pull them out and, and speed that up for you. It would Then it would be one minute, right? You mm-hmm. just install it and say, find your address, duplicates, click a button. Right. It's kind of That's on a to-do list, but it's not as high up as some other things that we're uh, doing. No, I got it. Hey, um, you got to explain one thing to me. I get SRD, well, SRD, G2, and Sensing. They seem like the same family, but how do they differ? You know, in SRD, we had the Nora technology, and that was kind of a gen, call it a gen, was really a gen two. We learned a lot over the course of SRD and built like two or three more versions of it. When I bought the company, call it gen five or six. And then G2 was, if you could start over from scratch and design it to run on cloud compute in different languages and be indifferent to entity types and not require experts, what would be required? We spent a year on paper before we even started coding just to get the schema right, how the data is stored. So they're just, they're all, they're evolutions. Evolutions are one of them. They're all, yeah, they're evolutionary. There is something uh, very different about G2. If you look at the very first entity engine that I built in the early 80s for the TransUnion Credit Bureau, it was for debtor matching. They had collection agencies attached to these credit bureaus and the uh, debtor matching, you wanted, if, if somebody owed five, uh, they had five bounce checks or five debts. You didn't want to send them five notices and call them five times. You just want to call them once and say, hey, man, you owe, you owe this amount of money for five things. And how do you do that? You had better matching. But if, you, if, I were, if we were to go back and look at that software and then compare it to the Nora stuff for the casinos in the early 90s, you could see how it grew up. And if you looked at the next system we built in 96 with 5,000 data sources and 100 million people, uh, in that uh, marketing database, you could see how that one evolved from the one before, and all the way up to Identity Insight. That whole lineage, you could just you can actually see how it grew up, both in the database schema and the algorithms. And in G2, it looks like a different species. It just you you can't see, connect it. It doesn't connect the same way. It's so radically different under the covers. So then, what's next? What's what's on the horizon for horizon <laughs> for sensing? I mean, uh, what what. What market forces are pushing you one way or another so that, uh, you know, what, what's the opportunity we're up against? We're, we, you know, we're going to make it just really easy for the world to use it. We're, we're not trying to make a lot of money from a few big companies. We, we're going to make a little money from everybody and, and maybe half the users nothing. We really think that uh, entity resolutions court us so many problems in analytics and good business decisions. And we just think everybody ought to have access to it and they shouldn't have to pay an arm and a leg. And that means the, I mean, our stuff works really good for the elite organizations, but now it's 10 times less money. So we, we just want to, our main focus right now is consumability. We just want it so easy to use that people just plug it in out of the box and then get incredible joy really quickly. 
And um, yeah. Nice. All right. Hey, look, I have got, I was, I was going to switch gears and I want to talk, uh, usually I do like what's called a lightning round where I ask, you know, about you personally, just fun. A lot of the listeners like to hear about it, but I've got more questions about you. And you mentioned it to start like, uh, you know, your, your triathlons, et cetera. But one more question before we jump into that, if you would, and that is any other stories, cause you have good stories that we haven't mentioned that you think is a good example, use case, that uh, really, really puts a highlight on your product. You know, I, we got a call on a on a Monday. Uh, I was chatting with a uh, this organization. I I'd not heard their name before, and and they go, we, we think we can use your software. And I said, well, what uh, what do you want to do with it? And they went, well, here's what we do. We take vendors from the biggest global brands. We take vendors from uh, you know I don't know Nike, Disney, Apple, whatever this long. They had this list of big global brands that. And uh, these cases are published, they're vendorless for transparency, the, you know, their ecosystem. And they go, there's duplicates in their vendor list because they're messy, but there's a lot of duplicates across because big global brands might use the same manufacturer. And then they go um, scrape the web for derogatory data about toxic spills, child labor, embezzlement, corruption. Hmm. And these are super messy names and addresses you know, from India and China and the Philippines and elsewhere. And so on this Monday night, they explained this and they go, we want to just feed this into sensing and see if it'll figure out who is who. So we can go back and warn these big global brands that maybe one of their vendors is going to bring them discredit. Would it work for that? And I went, man, I'm not really tried it on that. But I mean, you can give it a go. So Tuesday morning, we sent them the, the code. They called back Thursday. And they said, we've canceled all of our own entity resolution work. We're only using your tool. It's finding things we're not even sure humans could find. Nice. That's yeah. a good story. Yeah. I mean, because that was one of the great story, man. I'm like, yeah. woohoo. <laughs> that is a great story. Well, uh, the one thing I was going to ask, does it always have to be names? I mean, it can be like, I mean, in other words, does it have to be personal names? Can it be company names? Yeah, yeah, company names. That example was company yeah, names. That's I what I'm... I used that. That was names of manufacturers. It had some people names like managers and stuff, but we we can do things beyond people and companies, but that's all we're really talking about in the market right now is just people data and or company data. All right, fair enough. Hey, I want to ask you a few questions if you'll allow me to, but anything else you want to say before we kind of transition from sensing? No, I just love to have the, the viewers just download it and try it for free. No data flows to us. They could really find out in minutes how good this stuff is and I'd love to hear if they think it's not or if it is either way best way to get that on sensing.com yeah sensing.com yeah that, that'll work and we'll put that in the in the show notes we'll also uh, put some of your videos and presentation pitches in the, the show notes as well so awesome you can go out there and see it so look uh, I'm coming to understand you don't you don't sleep in your own bed is that right yeah I mean this personal experiment it's been about two months now I travel a lot. I wasn't getting home that much. I, I figured it was a good time to sell the house in the market in Venice Beach. I've been living there for three or four years now, half my life before that, Vegas. And uh, so it's up on the market. It's got a bunch of fake furniture in there, so it looks all fancy. <laughs> and then I thought, well, where am I going to live next? And I went, man, do I really want to have a place where 
uh, stuff has to be dusted twice a month so I can come and see it once a month. And I went, that's wasteful. So then I went, well, I'm not going to have a house. And I go, okay, well, then what you do is you put your furniture in storage. And I looked at my furniture and went, man, I'm going to want this in a year or two. And then I went and looked in my closet, and I noticed these clothes in there that I've not worn in a long, long time that I would never wear. And I started feeling disgusted. Like, why? what's happened to me, man? I've got all this stuff. There's this book, uh, like The Magical Art of Tidying Up or something like that. It's this book out of Japan. And one of the principles is you touch it to your piece of clothing and see if it gives you joy. So I started, like, I touched this piece of clothing. I wore this one piece a lot. I touched it, and I got no joy. I touched another piece of clothing. I'm like, that, that's joy. I reduced all my clothes to 81 pounds, including costumes and snow gear. I sent it to a company called Duffel, D-U-F-L. Mm-hmm. $10 a month, they have a closet for me. Just yesterday, I went online and clicked a bunch of stuff. I need some new socks, clean socks. Tomorrow, I'm going to get a suitcase of clean stuff. I'll put my dirty stuff in it, and they're going to take it back and clean it and put it back in my closet. And then I got rid of all my legal documents. I uploaded them to Dropbox. I, I, I even took pictures of my Iron Man medals and got rid of them. So everything I own now weighs less than 200 pounds. So that means you're you're tra- I mean you're staying in a new bed like almost every well you probably have some hotels that you you frequent or whatever but you're you're always on the move. I don't travel 99.99. I'm on the road 100%. And you know I mean I you know I still got my boat. I can go sleep on my boat. It's in Marina del Rey. I spend two or three weeks on that a year. But basically I'm just traveling through cities where I've got um, work to get done and or uh, family and friends. That's how I'm optimizing my life these days. And I'm so it's like minimalist, minimal, I can't even say that, minimalist living, huh? It's got to tell you, though, listen, I no longer have any squeaky garage door or plant in the yard I keep forgetting to tell the gardener about or possibly a leak that maybe i got to keep an eye on it. Like nothing in disrepair or, or needing maintenance. There's no honeydew list. Like... Man, I'm utterly unencumbered. I don't have my, I don't have my mind any. I don't. My mind not, doesn't have any of its uh, uh, atoms uh, tasks to broken stuff in my life. So is this a research project, or your, is your research done? This is the way it's going to be from now on. Well, I just I'm going to do this for a while until I just get a house or something else. But I thought it was a good experiment. I I wasn't really planning on talking about it because it just seemed like the right thing to do. But I've mentioned it to just enough people that went, man, that's really interesting. You should share the story. So I've only been talking about it publicly for maybe 30 or 45 days. And I haven't said much about it. It's just a personal decision. But it's not the rest of my life. It's just simple. It just made sense. Like, literally, I just went, wow. It's a good way. I think you have to write a blog about it in terms of your experience or something. Because it's it's like a reboot. It's it's kind of clean things up, get get a new perspective and, and... and move on, I guess. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it does feel like a reboot. I'm utterly encumbered now. Like, it's really, and I feel lighter. It's weird. But it comes with some nervousness. You forget how much you associate yourself with your things and having a place. I'm sure. I, yeah. I don't doubt it. And you probably find that, you know, the things that you're, you, you probably wake up with like a phantom worry about like that, that your, your, uh, your plant you mentioned, and then you realize, I don't have to worry about that. I'll just move on and worry about something else. These privacy laws like GDPR are actually going to be good for people like me because it's hard for me to really understand what my rights are to my data. Like I've uploaded all of my pictures to Dropbox. If somebody steals all my pictures, will anybody tell me? And it's not PII. It's not personally personally identifiable data. That's a whole nother podcast right there. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I'll tell you, though, I have been an epiphany from this about uh, my work in entity resolution and more broadly context computing, because in IBM I was the chief scientist of context computing. What I've kind of realized, and I've gone an extreme here, but get this, I believe that the digitization of mankind's activities has barely begun. I think you're right. It's, I mean, the fact that there are now photos of my clothes. We are going to end up with sensors that sense your blinking frequency. So the diversity of data is going to go through the roof, and the physical distribution, the number of piles in which this data lives, is just going to also explode. And I just think we're not even at first base. I think I read the other day, and I could get this wrong, I thought it was 180 uh, zettabytes of data by, what, 2022, something, something like that. I mean, it's like 350 million times what's on YouTube today. Cool. It's it's just yeah. It's, I mean, well, I mean, people wonder why you know why is AI so important and 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 machine learning is because we're getting to a point where you just there's too much data. You can't do that manually. It lends itself to your product, right? Hey, but let's switch again. So you you hit on how in the hell do you are you able to travel like you're traveling, maintain CEO of of, of a startup and be a hardcore triathlete. How does that work? How does that equation reconcile? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Well, I don't train very much for these triathlons, and uh, so I'm not particularly fast. You couldn't uh, be a CEO and work the hours that I work and, and be a competitive athlete. But I get out there, and it turns out these long days where you're spending 12 to 15 hours of cardio, it's really mainly mind over matter and you just do it yeah i get out there and i get out there and try you've to done a lot have you not i mean you've been a, a lot of races i just finished my 61st full distance ironman in florida four days ago sunday do you travel the world for all these yeah uh earlier this year i did ironman in philippines ironman norway and ironman estonia and you don't train you're you like i don't train much i mean i i normally only swim on race day I don't do any swimming all year round. And you get by. That's it. I, mean, I get by. In. Yeah. Five minutes into the swim, my arms are pretty pissed off. They're like, oh, you know what's happening next. <laughs> and then an hour and a half later, I'm flapping my little T-Rex arms. Um, you know, then the rest is pedaling. And I, I only go to spin class. I don't ride outside except for race day, uh, mainly. And then uh, I do a bit of running. I run three or four times a week. Now, i got to ask you about this because I wonder if it lends itself to the makeup of you know, where your head's at. I, I had read that you were briefly uh, quadriplegic after a, a car accident. Yeah, is, is true. That yeah, yeah. I was in a test drive in a BMW. I was 23. It was leap day in 1988. And the salesman uh, said he'd been trained on a racetrack and he was showing off the, the performance of the BMW. And he ran off the road. We hit an embankment at 63 miles an hour. In the back seat with a seatbelt on, and my body stopped suddenly, and my head went forward at 60. Oh. And I broke my neck at C2, right there where Christopher Reeves broke his. I was a full quadriplegic. I was watching myself die there briefly, and uh, but no one thought I, no one knew if I'd ever wiggle any part of my body again. Eight days later, a toe wiggled, and four months later, I kind of completed my rehab and was, you know, most everything's normal. Well, you're now you're doing. 61. I haven't done 61 triathlons. I mean, come on. I mean, that's it did. did I got to imagine that had a, 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 you know, a strong impact on who you are 
you know, you know it didn't really affect me as becoming it was many years later before i did any activity that was cardio like i was 31 my mom asked me if i wanted to run a marathon with her and i said yes and i trained in five weeks and she beat me so the, <laughs> the physical activity was really not where that came from if you would have asked me five months after the accident i would have told you four or five life lessons but i will tell you there is only one life lesson that has stuck with me and nothing else matters and that is the following, is that every day is an extra day. Uh, we should end there, but I got another question. That's, that's <laughs> <good> advice. <laughs> so what is, your, what is your ideal, speaking of days, what does your ideal day look like? You know what? I Honestly, my favorite thing to do is my work. I don't, it's, I don't, it's not even work. It's not a job. It's a hobby. If I go on on a vacation with girlfriend, uh, you know, and, and we're sitting on the beach and we're having margaritas, girlfriend might be reading a book and I'm on my laptop working and I'm getting, I'm incredibly happy. I don't know, man. It's just so fun. What, what we do at sensing and the relevance it has to the planet. It's just exciting. It's just, it's hard not to work. Nice. So my ideal day is that. And then now and then a long, uh, a long, either a long run or a, or a very fast run. Uh, just to clear my head so that I can have more ideas for work. <laughs> <laughs> the, actually, I mean, it works. It works well. I can't imagine a triathlon working like that, though. You're, you, I, I'd be trying to just get through. But a, a short run, a jog, yeah, that works great. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, man. You get mental. Uh, you get. Uh, it really rips your head apart. Well, Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been very informational. Uh, I will, like I said earlier, I'll put Sensing and a lot of the a lot of the links, everything from your your pitches that are out there on YouTube to LinkedIn and stuff. I appreciate everything that uh, you bring to the table here. It's been a great discussion, as I knew it would be. So thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. listening to the making data simple podcast where we make data fun be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes remember the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of ibm until next time over and out